Bibles this morning and turn to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We finally finished John 17, but now uh, we're going to get into John 18. And uh, the next number of messages will kind of go under the title of The Hour Has Come. Actually, we receive uh, get that from uh, chapter 17, but uh, uh, notice with me chapter 18 and beginning in verse 1. John chapter 18 and beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Kedron, where was a garden into which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus saith unto them, I am he, and Judas also, which betrayeth him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Then asked he them again, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spake, of them which thou gavest me, have I lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, and smote the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And then Jesus said unto Peter, Put up thy sword unto the sheath. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? After speaking words of life and interceding for those who are redeemed, the Lord is now boldly facing the hour for which he hath come to earth. Now often we think of these verses and the chapters that we're getting into as being uh, only preached around Easter or Resurrection Sunday when, when Christ was crucified. But these are part of the gospel uh, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Lord Jesus Christ. And that's uh, a topic that can be discussed any time of the year. It doesn't have to wait to a certain time of the year. But uh, here the Lord is boldly uh, facing the hour which, uh, for which he had come to this earth. Throughout John's gospel we find a number of references uh, to the Lord stating, My hour has not yet come. And when we come to John 12, only days before the cross, we find him declare the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In verses 27 through 28, we hear him saying, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. 
And then in the next chapter, we see uh, Christ seated at the table with his disciples for the Passover uh, feast. And John makes the par- uh, parenthetical statement in chapter 13 and verse 1. He says, now there uh, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. And again, we find the words uh, repeated at the beginning of the high priestly prayer in chapter 17. Uh, he says there, These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. And so there is a firm resolution in the mind of the Lord that he would drink the cup that the father would hand to him on behalf of sinners. The events of his passion can be summarized in this statement, Mine hour has come. And for all that our Lord faced, it came not by chance, but by divine design to fulfill the redemptive plan of God for sinners because Jesus drank the cup of death. And we can drink the cup of life from his hand. And in verse 11, Jesus asked the question there, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink it? So every part of the Lord's passion, that is, those events leading up to and culminating with the death, burial, and resurrection, enable us to understand how all of it joins together in His saving work. And we want to consider what was involved in the first stage of our Lord Jesus Christ drinking the cup on our behalf And we'll look here at the hour has come, betrayal. Notice, first of all, a cup to drink. A cup to drink. Now, the the metaphor of drinking a cup can be, I think, easily understood by most anyone. Uh, In this case, the cup has a reference to that which was necessary for our salvation being fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we sometimes use the phrase when referring to someone facing a discipline. Uh, or rebuttal. You know, he's going to have to take his medicine. You know, he's going to have to take his medicine. He's going to have to drink that cup. Uh, It pictures a person facing a consequence and taking all the bitterness that may come with it. And our Lord faced a bitter cup of wrath uh, handed to him by the Father so that sinners might be justified. So notice, first of all, Accepting its contents. Accepting its contents. What is in the cup? Uh, There in verse 11, the Lord rebuked Peter who tried to short-circuit the arrest by swinging his sword. And Peter's attempt was perhaps noble, but it was foolish. Uh, There was a battalion. Uh, We we don't really see this many times. The word we find in our, our, our text is band of soldiers. Uh, but uh, it's really a battalion of soldiers, probably anywhere from 200 to 600 armed soldiers, along with the temple police, uh, that is officers from the chief priest. And so uh, Peter is no Jonathan, who, who along with his armor bearer boldly went into the camp of the Philistines and killed them right and left. No, Peter was just a fisherman. Uh, he wasn't really a warrior. Uh, he was a disciple, but unfortunately, one who had not caught on to what Jesus had been telling him about his impending death and resurrection. 
Uh, Peter had really not grasped the Father's infinite holy hatred of sin, and nor had he grasped the Father's infinite love and mercy bringing Christ to this hour on behalf of sinners. So we find here Peter swinging a small sword, uh, cutting off the ear of the high priest's slave, though he intended probably to actually take his head off. Uh, he just caught the ear. And uh, then the sobering words of the Lord addressing Peter's misunderstanding, he says, put up thy sword into the sheath, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? In other words, Peter, don't you understand? I have not fallen into the hands of sinful men, but all of this is by divine design. This is from my father, uh, given from his hand for your salvation. The cup which Jesus spoke of has contents. Uh, it was not a cup of pleasure. Uh, it was not a cup of delight uh, that the Father offered him. No, it's instead the cup of God's wrath awaiting the sinless lips of our Lord. It was a cup that he would drink completely. And when we look at the agony of the Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was not an agony so much due to the physical suffering that Christ would face, Surely that was a concern, but it paled in comparison to the sense of spiritual suffering and eternal agony that Christ would endure on the cross. He was conscious that his death involved a substitution. He knew that the judgment due sinners would be aimed at him. He understood that God's righteousness demanded that every son of Adam face the eternal consequences of the fall, and every sin receive its just punishment. And so the word that characterizes what he would face is wrath. Wrath. Wrath expresses the righteous judgment of God that has been withheld in patient mercy awaiting the day for to, to be released. And I've heard it often described as a body of water that's kind of dammed up and it grows and it grows until finally the dam breaks and all the water comes gushing out in destructive power. And so God's wrath awaited as it tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 5 and 6, But after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasureth up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. The fact that his wrath is withheld is not evidence that it will not come. It just simply is evidence of the divine patience inventing his eternal judgment against sinners. Uh, Isaiah described the arrow of God's wrath piercing Jesus Christ on our behalf. He said in Isaiah 53, verse 4 and 5, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Now those words, I think, carry the weight of judgment being leveled at one person on behalf of a multitude. Bearing our griefs, carrying our sor sorrows, stricken, smitten of God, afflicted, pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastened for our well-being, scourged for our healing. These are the words of atonement, of redemption, of life. 
This is a cup which our Lord bore for us. I hope we never get tired of hearing about it, thinking about it. For those who have faith in Christ, he drank every drop of that cup of wrath. Not one drop of God's wrath is left. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. And then notice not only the contents, accepting its contents, but yielding to its presenter. Yielding to its presenter. The the cup also meant, drinking the cup also meant that it was going to be received from someone's hand. And we must see Jesus did not drink the cup of the Jews. Uh, He did not drink the cup of the Romans or the cup of the world. Notice he says here, the cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? It was the father who presented his son with this sacrificial table of his wrath. It was the father who extended the cup to the waiting hands of his own pure sinless son. The cup contained all the wrath of God, all the pent up judgment that we deserve for our sins. You go back and think about the Garden of Gethsemane for a moment in that picture offered in the Synoptic Gospels. We find Jesus kind of withdrawing a stone's throw from his disciples, agonizing before the Father to the point that his his brow burst into sweat drops of blood. We have... At all, uh, we've all had times, I think, when we've agonized over some situation. I don't know what you agonize over. Sometimes it might be a financial matter or might be in a, a situation involving your children or some news of a, the death of a loved one. And it brings a great deal of agony and, and despair almost. But you know what? Our agony, whatever it is, is very slight compared to that of Jesus Christ. John comments that Jesus knew all things that were coming upon him. He understood the depth and the weight of divine wrath towards sinners. Uh, I don't know whether we have given much thought to this ourselves, but I think we need to consider that God created this world in purity and holiness, and yet through the fall, sin entered into our world, and a multitude of sinners followed in a sinful lineage of that first man, Adam, And our sin is so contrary to the nature and character of God that just one sin deserves an eternal weight of divine vengeance and judgment. And you consider that for Adam's one sin, the whole human race fell under judgment. That gives us a bit of an idea of the severity of our sin against the backdrop of God's holiness. Now, the Father's hands... Uh, or the father hands the uh, cup of his wrath to his son. What would Jesus do with it? Well, it says in Matthew twenty six thirty nine, and he went a little farther and fell on his face and face and prayed, saying, "Oh my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt." And so, in agony of that moment, Jesus appeals to his father. Was there another way for sinners to be forgiven? Was there another way for sinners to be brought into a right relationship unto God? Was there another way to remove the effects of the curse and take away a man's enmity with God? Could this cup of wrath be bypassed? 
and the Father's will still be fulfilled. Well, we find Christ willingly, gladly submitting to the Father's will. He yielded to his presenter, his own Father, as he extended the cup of his wrath. And it is in the drinking of this cup of wrath given to him by the Father that we are, have our salvation secured. God himself took the initiative to provide the salvation for sinners. Uh, we did not appeal to him or uh, come up with some kind of different uh, saving plan. Now man all over the world has tried to come up with a plan. But God's plan is perfect. God satisfied the infinite measure of his wrath through the suffering of death by his son. Do you see that this cup really should have been ours? We deserve the cup. We deserve the cup of God's wrath. But by the grace of God, Christ drank it for us. He drank the cup of wrath that we might drink from his hands, the cup of redeeming life. I trust that each one of us this morning here this has received that cup and drunk from his hands. But notice, not only a cup to drink, but a condition to realize. A condition to realize. Why the cup of wrath? Why the cup of wrath? Why did Jesus have to face such agony? As we look at the text here, we find the condition that explains the necessity of our Lord drinking the cup of wrath. First, there is failed anger. Failed anger. And I don't want you to misunderstand. I, I ask you to excuse my comparison here, but it's, there's almost a cat and mouse game going on here in the Gospels. If any of you have had a cat and you've had any problems with mice, you know how they can play. It's fascinating to see how both religious and political leaders tried to capture Jesus in order to put him to death. But they never could. They tried. You go back to the birth of Christ and the narratives there and the wonderful, joyous occasion when the wise men searched for Christ and they inquired of Herod the Great, the ruler of the region of Palestine, about the birth of a new king. Herod wanted to know where that baby was. Not for worship. But he wanted to, he was afraid that that king might arise to take his throne. And the angel warned Joseph that Herod was in a rampage. And so he might take Mary and Joseph, or Jesus to a safety in Egypt. Where afterward Herod killed all the baby boys up to two years of age in the whole area around Bethlehem. But he didn't find Christ. When Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth, we read back in Isaiah 61 in his hometown synagogue, a messianic passage that he claimed was fulfilled by him. And at first they enjoyed the words, but then they realized that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. So they took him out of the synagogue to the edge of the city and they cast him over a cliff, which the city had was built upon. But Jesus walked out right from out of their midst. He was, it was not his time. The hour was not, had not come. How many times do we see in the Gospels the religious leaders trying to capture Christ? And so often our Lord would expose the hypocrisy of the religious leaders and they'd watch the anger rise and, then they, and he'd walk right out of their midst even though they were, had every intention of capturing him. But his hour had not come. 
All of these scenes, I think, uh, uh, picture what we can call failed anger. These people were not unusual. The root of every man is, uh, has a hostility toward God. And it's due to our enmity or our separation from God. Man resists the demands of God. He resents every truth that reveals his spiritual condition. And if he could get away with it, man would throw God out of his life. And that's why we deserve God's wrath. But you also notice here a betraying friend. Everyone likes to be loved. Everyone wants to have friends. Friends that are faithful. Friends that are true. I suppose there are a few hurts in life any worse than being betrayed. I've seen it in the eyes of a husband or a wife whose spouse had betrayed them. I've seen it in teenagers' faces when his or her best friend has been divulging confidences. And in our text, we, we see something even worse. We find Judas Iscariot, a man who witnessed firsthand the miraculous works of Christ, who heard the marvelous words of Jesus, who observed the purity of Christ's character, now is betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. So often Judas had joined the other eleven to find rest and refreshment within the walls of this garden. And there they talked and they prayed and they felt an incredible love which Jesus had for them. And it was in this same place that Judas is going to betray our Lord. His greed for silver, the material things that, uh, that could be obtained overran any semblance of sane judgment. Judas' betrayal of Jesus because that was the nature of his heart. Satan had entered his heart because the idols of coveting remained enshrined in unrepentance and unbelief we see back in chapter 13. The sad thing is that if we are given the opportunity, apart from God's grace, we would have probably done the same thing. Judas deserved God's wrath, but so do we. We share, share the same spirit of greed and rebellion. And so then we come to revelation resisted. What was about to happen was no surprise to Jesus. His omniscience, coupled with his foreknowledge, gave him a clear knowledge of what was about to happen. And he therefore went to meet the armed men and asked, Whom seek ye? Now, it was dark. And they had lights with them, but the light was not very bright. It had no LED flashlights. The light was not bright. And so only Judas knew him well. John does not record the kiss of treason here in his account. But Jesus therefore said, when they, when they asked uh, or answered Jesus of Nazareth, he said, I am he. It's good to note that he precisely said, I am. The he is in italics, inserted by the translators. It's the same construction which Jesus back in John 8 and 58, where he speaks clearly of his deity as amply recognized by the Pharisees, then in 
attempting to stone him. And as the Pharisees and Jesus knew well, they knew the Old Testament, and they knew that the name Jehovah comes from the first singular of the verb to be. And so he essentially says, I am. Though the Romans didn't probably understand that, the Pharisees did. And with that, the flash of divine brilliance, they stayed by their intentions, following through with the arrest of Jesus. They resisted the revelation of that moment because of the wickedness of their own hearts. Now, is that not the common lot of so many who hear the preaching of God's word and they observe the testimony of saving grace, but they say, I don't want anything to do with it. And so they defiantly, stubbornly, reject it. Paul explained that God has made himself known and evident to men, and yet they spurn him. And God's response in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and 19, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God has showed it unto them. And that's a kind of spiritual condition that demands the wrath of God. And so that brings us then thirdly to a love to display. Everyone finds himself spiritually sunk condition under the wrath of God. But God, as it says in Ephesians, but God, who is rich in mercy, provides the only way and the sure way for sinners to be delivered for, from wrath and secured as sons. So we see the display of his great love in our text here. First, there's a complete knowledge. Jesus knew exactly what was going to transpire in the next few hours. Jesus says, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth. And the present tense of the verb knowing, uh, knowing, implies that it was a very real, ongoing knowledge that weighed upon the mind of our Lord. He was not just walking into the dark, as we often uh, we do so often when facing new decisions. We just say, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go ahead, and we walk into the door, dark. No, Jesus is walking right into the face of death and the cup of wrath, knowing what it meant. And I would submit to you that this is a demonstration of the love of God. For sinners. You do not see Jesus trying to avoid arrest. He doesn't say, quick, hide. He says, it's dark. They won't see us. No, he goes right ahead, right into it. He knows what he's there for. He understood much more about what would transpire than all of his foes put together. They only knew what they wanted to Uh, rid themselves of this man. They knew that that the redemptive plan of the ages was being fulfilled, culminating in his drinking the cup of the Father's wrath. And Christ alone, of all men, understood the infinite horror that lay before him as the waves of divine wrath would be coming, crashing upon him. And he knew what he faced, yet he never shrank from it in fear. Though he knew all things that should come unto him, he boldly went forth to face them for the glory of the Father and the salvation of sinners. And such knowledge and action by the Jesus Christ demonstrates the fullness of his love for sinners. The human tendency is to avoid pain, 
Nobody likes pain. Nobody likes discomfort. No one likes opposition. Most of all, we'll do whatever we can to ensure that things are just lovely and peaceful, won't we? Yet we do not see the Lord hesitating and stepping forth to face the beginning of the cup of wrath. If you have dared to doubt the love of God, for you as a sinner, you need to look no further than his arrest in the garden. To be seized with the magnificence of divine love for those deserving wrath. We also notice here not only complete knowledge, but a willing sacrifice. Even with the knowledge of all that he would face, Jesus never hesitated. Uh, He never questioned the Father's will or hedged on his obedience. He went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? We have heard of Jonathan Edwards in his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And here we have the incarnate God in the hands of angry sinners. But our Lord had no fear of them. They were no concern to him, for they were mere men. And the thing that loomed before him was the cup of wrath from his father's hand. Yes, he would suffer horribly and excruciating pain at the hands of those sinful men, but the eternal weight of suffering would be upon him as he bore the sins of the world before the judgment of God. His willingness to face God's wrath for us displays a love that goes beyond measure. We've probably all read some wonderful stories about people who have made great sacrifices for others. Perhaps we've read of uh, people who took the place of someone condemned to die, uh, freeing the condemned person, bearing their guilt before executioners. But when we read those stories... None do justice to the eternal value of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And to think that the Son of God would lay down His life before the judgment which all of us deserve. That's the greatest display of love the world could ever know. John wrote, Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, that not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We might give our lives in sacrifice for others, but none of us can give ourselves a, a propitiatory sacrifice, a just satisfaction of righteousness demands God's justice. This word, propitiation, you know, has a background of averting the wrath of God. It's a good word, and it helps us to grasp what Christ was doing as he went forth into the hands of his accusers. Wrath is a very real matter, for it is a burning zeal for the right, uh, coupled with a perfect hatred for everything that is evil. Now, if there's such a divine hostility and evil, it is obvious that something must be done. If man, sinner as he is, is ever to be accepted. And what God has done to take human flesh and bear the full weight of his holy wrath as our substitute, since his wrath is satisfied, he can freely give sinners a new life, a new relationship. 
And in this case, Jesus is the judge that demands holy retribution, the one executed in place of the guilty. Herein is love. Indeed, we see the love of God for sinners by seeing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, a willing sacrifice, and then a preserving Lord. Our Lord did not forget one promise. Remember, we started the day out saying, but you promised. Some of you missed that in Sunday school, but the Lord did not forget one promise. Through the ordeal of his passion, here he demands, for so the imperative, the command shows us, the release of those who were his followers. He said, I have told you that I am he. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. The word might be fulfilled which he spoke. Those that thou gavest me I have kept and none of them lost. And though the immediate preservation was physical, I think the implication of that is eternal. For our Lord has already promised that none of those given to him by the Father would perish. John 17, 12. And so he demonstrates the greatest of his love by caring for his own, even in the face of wrath. And we do not have a fickle love in Jesus Christ, a wavering love, a uh, love that is not steadfast and sure. It's not like he will save us one day and then another day change his mind. We see his love preserving his own forever. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should have everlasting life. Not just life for a day or two. Not just life for now, but life for eternity. And we find the overwhelming love of Christ extended to us, picking us up when we have fallen low, carrying us through the times of weakness, giving grace to us in times of need, sustaining us by his mighty power to save what he finished on the cross on our behalf and bearing the judgment of God against us. He finished. We do not contribute to our salvation by our own merit. Christ alone stands as our righteousness. The fact that he keeps us to the end demonstrates the greatness of his love and the sufficiency and the completion of his work at the cross. For there are plenty of times when we have failed him, when we have turned our backs on him, when we've given in to sin, when we've neglected our walk with him. But he keeps on loving us. Notice Jesus' hour had come and he drank the cup of God's wrath so that you would have to drink that same cup for eternity. Most of the, uh, so you would not have to drink that same cup for eternity. Most of the world refuses to trust in the merits of Christ for their salvation. They say, oh, that's too easy or that's too hard or that's something. You know, they make an excuse for some reason or another. But the day will come when they will face eternity of wrath justly given because of their enmity with God. What about you this morning? You say, I've, well, I've heard this, I've read this, I've, I've gone over this so many times in my life. I, I, this is just kind of old stuff for me. Don't let it become old. 
This is why you're here. Are you living under the wrath of God at this moment? Well, unless you've embraced Jesus Christ by repenting of your sins and trusting Him alone for your salvation, you are heading for a destiny of God's wrath. And so I would urge you, I would plead with you, flee to Jesus Christ by faith. He drank the cup of wrath for you so that you might receive the cup of life from His hands as you trust Him as your prophet, priest, and king. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven...